From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. A lot of people have been home. They've had time to work on making different products at home, and now they've decided, I, I want to go into food. I want to make this food product. This week on the show, Josephine McRobbie takes us inside the Piedmont Food Processing Center, supporting startup food businesses in North Carolina. And we revisit conversations with Medicine Miha, Gangster Gardener, and some innovative home cooks making delicious food even when the power is out. All that and more just ahead, so stay with us. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Renee Reed is here with Food and Farming Reports. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Tyson and Purdue Farms have agreed to pay millions of dollars to chicken farmers to settle a class action lawsuit. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports the lawsuit alleged that the chicken processors conspired to keep down farmer wages. Tyson and Purdue Farms agreed to pay a total of $36 million. It's part of an ongoing antitrust lawsuit against chicken companies such as Pilgrim's Pride, Sanderson Farms, and Cook Foods. Gary Smith Jr. represents the broiler chicken farmers. He says the lawsuit alleges companies agreed not to hire away one another's growers. And although in a competitive market, you would go out and you would try to attract the best labor you could have, um, our allegations is that's not what they've done. They've effectively allocated the markets amongst one another. Smith says in settling, Tyson and Purdue Farms have also agreed to cooperate against other alleged conspirators. The settlement is part of many lawsuits against big meat packing plants alleging they break federal antitrust laws. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Renewable energy in the Midwest is getting a big financial boost from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The department announced today that it's investing more than $400 million in solar, wind, and other renewable energy projects across rural America. Nearly half of that will go to projects in the Midwest. U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Bilsack says this investment will help rural economies grow. I think there's a recognition and appreciation that climate-smart infrastructure can lower uh, energy costs for rural small businesses and farming operations. Uh, It can also spur economic development. Two of the largest loans will go to a solar farm in Illinois and an electric line enhancement project in Oklahoma. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is handing out $700 million to help farm and meatpacking workers cover covert-related expenses like PPE or testing fees. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rimpert reports that individual employees are eligible for up to $600 through the federal program. Payments will reach workers through state agencies, tribal entities, and nonprofits, which can apply for the money starting in early fall. Nebraska State Senator Tony Vargas proposed requiring meat processors to provide masks and implement other safety measures for their employees. He says he's glad to see workers getting help. It makes me happy that government is seeing their role in being able to provide support to our neediest individuals. If it wasn't for them, I can't imagine what would happen to our food supply chain. The USDA will also soon announce a separate $700 million grant program for producers, processors, distributors, and farmers markets to offset COVID-related costs. 
Elizabeth Rembert, Harvest Public Media. Thanks to Harvest Public Media, Seth Bodine, Dana Cronin, and Elizabeth Rempert for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed. making your own jam at home throughout the pandemic and aren't sure if it's time to start your own business? If so, you might consider looking up a commercial kitchen. Josephine McRobbie tours through one such business in central North Carolina. It's a whirlwind of activity when I visit the Piedmont Food Processing Center, also known as PFAP, in Hillsboro, North Carolina. The commissary and incubator facility is made up of four commercial kitchens. This morning, one of the rooms is occupied by Chef Tova Bohm and her team at Short Winter Soups. It's a a good space for us. It's big, there's a lot of storage, there's a lot of perks and add-ons that make it easy for a small business like us to operate. Each week, they make about 50 gallons of soup from local ingredients. Today we are making a watermelon gazpacho, a coconut red lentil soup with rainbow chard, a chilled golden beet soup, winter squash. That's it. Executive Director Eric Hallman says PFAP was developed in 2011 by the four surrounding county systems as a way to support the local food economy. It now operates as a nonprofit. The space primarily serves new food businesses, producers that have outgrown the home kitchen but aren't at the level of having their own factory or production space. People come to the facility, they rent kitchen space by the hour, they rent storage, whether it's dry storage or refrigerated or frozen storage, and start their food business. And without this, the barriers to starting a food business would be significant. Each kitchen is outfitted with ranges, ovens, freezers, and coolers, but also specialty equipment. We're reluctant to buy a new piece of equipment that's just because somebody needs it. Like with a bottler, a uh, bottle filler. We, we've now got so many people needing bottle filling that that's a priority and we have a bottle filler. We have a, a very expensive chocolate tempering cooking device. Um, we have a, a blast liquid nitrogen blast freezer that frees things down at, uh, rapidly to really low temperatures. So all kinds of things like that. About 60 local food producers currently work out of PFAP. They are caterers, food truck chefs, and people making packaged goods like mushroom jerky, lactation cookies, and barbecue sauce. In order to accommodate this many people sharing a facility, it's open 24 hours a day, every day of the year. Eric lives nearby. He has his fair share of stories about showing up at 3 a.m. because someone locked themselves out. But generally, things work well, even during the graveyard shifts. Everyone here knows that the facility works because everybody makes sure things work well. So there's a lot of people helping each other out. So it's not like we have to be around all the time. There's, if there's other companies in the building, they're helping each other. It, it, it kind of runs itself, but it's also like having 60 roommates. Somebody's always leaving the dirty cup in the sink, and um, we're having to come and go, whose is this mess? 
He's joking, but a dirty cup at a commercial food kitchen can be a sign of a bigger problem. That is our one fear is that there'll be one bad actor that will cause the whole facility to have to be shut down if they were doing something that was unsafe. So our cleaning sanitation is the thing that we pay the most attention to. And most of our clients, we walk them through an orientation, we make sure that they have some basic food safety training, but you know, we are always very vigilant about making sure everybody follows through. But 10 years and we've never had an incident. In the hallway, we bump into food safety consultant Curry Nobles. He's taking photos for an upcoming webinar on safe kitchen practices for the Carolina Farm Stewardship Association. He says he's here because PFAP is an example of how to do things the right way. I've, I've been in a lot of food facilities that have really, really terrible floors, um, and that's that can be a big issue for cross-contamination and, and, and causing foodborne illness outbreaks. Um, and so here, the coving along the floors and the walls is very, very smooth and rounded, which is, which is good from a food safety perspective. So I've been kind of down on my knees taking pictures of the floor. We duck into another of the four kitchens to meet Kalpna Ramji. Her business, Safi Foods, produces a low-carb flour mix. So this was designed by me. My, my background is in nutrition. Uh, and I'm helping women to eat healthy. So this is a flower that I've created and tested and getting it inspected now. Today is her first food safety inspection with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. She and the Department of Ag representative are bent over a giant industrial mixer, having trouble with its settings. They wave over Sue Ellsworth, the facilities manager for PFAP. With a little work, they get the mixer going again, and the group cheers. To be honest, I'm a little surprised that a food safety inspection feels so relaxed. But for Sue, it's important to help her clients through these checks that can come from the health department, the Department of Agriculture, or even the FDA. She started here as a producer herself with the popsicle company Luna Pops. She remembers those stressors well. I actually did go through a two and a half day FDA audit as a client here, and I can tell you I was absolutely terrified. So I put a lot of emphasis on making sure that people understand the regulatory agencies are here to help you. A big part of Sue's job is providing training and support in everything from operational planning to product marketing. And she's finding that there are more and more homegrown businesses in need of these services. Because a lot of people have been home, they've had time to work on making different products at home, and now they've decided, I, I want to go into food, I want to make this food product. So it's interesting to work with them and find out what their motivation is and what their products are and help them work through it because a lot of these folks have no food experience. They were just locked up at home making strawberry jam or making barbecue sauce or whatever it is. And I think we've all had time to really reflect on life during COVID, and some people are making some big changes. Her favorite topic is also one of the trickiest for new food producers, regulatory guidance. Understanding why you have to put certain things, certain information on labels, understanding allergens when they don't have any food experience. She tells me about another experience she had when she was running her own business. One of our popsicles was a hibiscus pop, 
And we had that out for a couple of years before we realized that hibiscus is typically intercropped with peanuts when you purchase it from Egypt. So we had to go back and really look at the product and make sure that we had the appropriate allergen information on it. Luckily, we had always put on our boxes that the product was manufactured in a shared commercial kitchen and it could contain allergens, but we were a little surprised to find out that that was the case. In addition to providing trainings, PFAP operates a scholarship for free kitchen time, a statewide network of incubator kitchens, and a grant program for purchasing local produce. Sue also runs We Power Food, an organization that supports women owners of food businesses. Women try to do everything themselves, and when you're an entrepreneur, you're often working in a silo. You don't have the support that you need, and We Power is really about providing educational resources, tools, networking, and I think most importantly, a safe place for women to be able to share what they're dealing with and ask for help when they need it. Also in the building today is Ashlyn Smith of Spicy Green Gourmet, a catering company that provides over 600 meals a week for food banks, Meals on Wheels, and other clients in the community. We were doing health care and school meals before COVID, but they're really ramped up because of COVID because we were all individually portioned meals. Um, and we just Spicy Green Gourmet is a well-established business. They're not a startup anymore. And so Chef Smith is able to serve as a mentor for others at the facility. Recently, she was a featured speaker for We Power Food. And they had a lot of questions that I had back when I started about 10 years ago. So I was able to see that there is a light in the tunnel. You keep working at it, you're okay. You know, There's gonna be a trial, there's gonna be this, there's gonna be that, but you keep going forward and you can have a good product and a good result. And they can always feel free to contact me, call me, catch me in the hallway. Leaving the Piedmont Food Processing Center, Eric shows me a display case of their clients' packaged goods. Some now have national distribution. But for him, every business that's still running, especially through a pandemic, is a success. While we've had four national brands come out of here, we are just as proud of these smaller regional brands. We help people define what's a success. And a success may be, I've got a local business that people love. So we're proud of our caterers and we're proud of our food trucks. As an incubator, we look back over the last three and a half years of the 130 companies that have come through here, 75% of those companies are still in business. They're still alive through COVID. And for any incubator, but much less coming through COVID, to have 75% of your clients, 75% of your entrepreneurs still in business, we're very proud of that. For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McRobbie. Find photos and more from this story at eartheats.org. I'm Kate Young. We'll be back in a moment. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. This interview was recorded in 2020. So this is the 
main garden area. This year we just did enough veggies for ourselves and lots of medicinal flowers and herbs throughout the summer. Mm -hmm. And we'll have a hoop house over here. And then we're gonna double the space back that way because we have about an acre. That's the plan for next year now that Luna's a little older and I can actually devote some time to it. But um, We're in the garden of Shauna Huey, west of downtown in Bloomington, um, Indiana. It's late summer, still plenty hot and humid, but the garden is beginning to wind down. Shauna is showing me around her garden area behind the house. Right now, we really just have like basil, tomatoes, some herbs, okra over here. There's a bunch of stuff over there like herbs and oregano and onions and squash. This was all cucumbers, but I took it out so I can put radishes in. Um, and then over here I have some medicinals, nettles and pansy. Um, and then I have echinacea over there. And back by that tree I have a lot of lemon balm and dill. And there's a chicken coop. After the garden tour, I sat down with Shauna in her shady front yard to talk about her work. My name is Shauna Huey, and I am the owner of Wildman Apothecary. Shauna is known on Instagram as Medicine Miha. She shares beautiful images of plants, both wild and cultivated, and herbal tinctures, teas, salves, and tonics, which she handcrafts for Wild Mint Apothecary. She also shares information and instruction. She works from her home, these days with her baby daughter Luna by her side. I asked Shauna to tell me about her journey as an herbalist. She said it started for her back in 2014. I was really into essential oils and skincare. Having more melanated skin, I was always really conscious of the lotions I was using and what I was putting on my body. And I started making my own skincare, and then that led to more of the herbs and how to use them for my well-being and my healing. I think if you have more m melanin in your skin, you're more likely to be dry and maybe exhibit some skin issues that people who are white don't. And the cosmetic industry and beauty industry is promoting it for fair skin and for um, predominantly white women. So I would put like certain lotions on and it would be like, this is not doing anything for my skin. I need something thicker in winter. And then I have, I have nephews who are black. I have like darker shades of brown in my family. So just seeing like skincare growing up, it just was a huge thing. Um, and realizing that some of the things that are being sold are really drying to my type of skin and realizing that I, I needed to figure out how to, how to make it. Once I first started developing a relationship with herbalism, I went to like a conference and I did workshops and I really started my own personal studies with it. And around the same time, I also became really interested in gardening and food justice and sustainability. So kind of all happened around the same time. And I wasn't really able to make it a lifestyle until we bought land, really. My first garden 
I just had a little urban porch garden and I did all containers and I grew beans and okra and things that you wouldn't think you know could grow in little containers but I did at first it was more oh this is interesting it's fun to learn it's also practical because then I have produce for myself and I don't have to go to the grocery store and I have beautiful cutting flowers to decorate I don't have to go purchase a bouquet but then it became it became more about my, my personal healing journey and my connection to my ancestors and spiritual practice, a way to fight against a really oppressive system that discriminates a lot of, against black and brown people and has stripped us of our ancestral practices, our culture, our roots, and so along the way that's been more of my passion behind it so yeah that's kind of the space I'm in now is it's more it's more about social justice and food justice and healing and it's awesome also to be able to give back to the community and help when I first started in herbalism every single teacher that I knew any Every person that I knew that it was at the top of herbalism and farming was white. I didn't understand why I never felt 100% comfortable or why the space wasn't as safe for me. And because herbalism isn't just like taking herbs, it's a lifestyle, it's spiritual, it's healing, it's all this stuff. So when it clicked for me that wow, I don't see any brown or black leaders. I think like the overall goal for me is to make it more accessible for people like me. Even, I'm not saying just black or brown people, but I think uh, it, it's, it's close to heart in my heart because I just want that community for myself. She started Wild Mint Apothecary with her herbal creations using natural and foraged ingredients. I asked her about her instructional Instagram videos. I really want my Instagram to be more accessible and have more info, but with having a baby, it's been really hard to, because when I first started it, I was like, here's the recipe, like here are the ingredients, here's how to do it. It's really not that hard. I was doing a lot of foraging videos where I was like, this is what a plantain looks like, or this is what Creeping Charlie looks like, and hey, you can eat it. But I haven't had, like last year, I had way more time for it, and this year, you know, it's a little harder, but. One of the videos she did make walked through the steps of making fire cider. I'm a folk herbalist or a community herbalist, so I like to use like what's growing around here. And so with fire cider, the reason why I love it is because it's stuff that's growing. It's like onions and garlic and peppers and like whatever's growing outside or oregano, parsley, put it in there with apple cider vinegar. So it's really very accessible. It's easy to make. You don't have to really go identify anything. You don't really need to know how to grow it if you can find it locally. Fire cider is fiery, hot, and intense. It's taken as a tonic with the hope of boosting the immune system. Shauna notes that folk herbalism focuses on the local environment. If you're living in a community, you know what's growing and, you, and if the foods are already around you or they're native to you, then you have a connection with them. And the practice of a folk herbalist 
is different from the practice of a clinical herbalist. For me, it's more about like preventative care and wellness, overall wellness. And yeah, I mean, I, I know how to treat allergies or gastro stuff or headaches. But she's not taking on the treatment of, say, diabetes or an autoimmune disease. We talked about food justice and food access and how it relates to her work. I think for me, with herbalism and growing food, it goes back to just being a minority and seeing so many black and brown people being so disproportionately affected by health issues in our world. And even they're more likely to get COVID and um, die from it. And so if you look at that way that our system is set up, the people who are oppressed are the ones who are least likely to get that good quality food. So to me, one of the biggest systemic issues is food, honestly. Because if you had quality food, if you had access to medicine that wasn't super expensive, and big pharma wasn't like ruling everything, then people would be healthier and not be dying and not be sick. One of the important things that I feel is maybe undervalued when it comes to farming and herbalism sometimes is the importance for it for people of color isn't just a practicality or a sustainability or food justice thing, but I really do think it's healing. It's really a way to like take back our power. There was a lot, there is a lot of trauma and pain from getting your practices ripped away from you through colonization. So I think one thing for me that's super important is for people to understand is that for me and for a lot of other POC who are doing this, it's like so much deeper. It's about connecting back to our roots and our ancestry, our, our ways of life. Um, my bisabuela it, uh, was a native and my also my great grandpa on my mom's side was as well and I have natives on my dad's side and as well as European an ancestry and um, some African ancestry as well. But all of that those cultural practices that were really rooted in land stewardship and growing and healing was stripped away through colonization in South and Central America. And there's a lot of immigrants and black folks who have experienced that. And to get back to land stewardship and growing and connecting to plants is so incredibly powerful to healing our generational traumas, our ancestral traumas, our colonization traumas. Um, and so for me, that's like, that is like the root of all of it for me is, it's incredibly healing and it brings me joy. And I really want other people who are POC to be able to experience that connection to all of our past, our culture keeps getting stripped away and then we're boxed out of farming and boxed out of these spaces that are just 
predominantly white and exclusive. I'm really into ancestral movement, so, and that's like the theory of exercise is like separate. And then there's movement that's rooted in what we would do as our ancestors, which is like baby wearing while we're working in the yard, um, weeding, growing foods, walking in community, like all of that stuff is so tied in with the growing food. And so when you make it the center of your world, it heals so many parts of it within your, within your life. It's nourishing literally, and it's also spiritually very nourishing. That was Shauna Huey, gardener and herbalist with Wild Mint Apothecary. On Instagram, she's Medicine Miha. That's Medicine, M-I-J-A. And you can find her at Wild Mint Apothecary on Facebook. We have those links on our website, eartheats.org. this year, in February, Texas faced an uncharacteristic cold weather event followed by extensive power outages. It was a deadly and devastating crisis that carried on for far too long. This week, the Gulf Coast was hit by a much more familiar extreme weather event, Hurricane Nicholas, followed by excessive rain. Since some areas in Texas are experiencing power losses again, I thought this might be a good time to revisit my conversation with Brooke Barclay and Timo Klisch in Houston. During the snowstorm and cold snap back in February, they turned to their outdoor grill and came up with some innovative meal plans to keep their spirits up during a trying time. Maybe their ideas can serve as inspiration for those without power in the Gulf region, or even for those of us at the tail end of summer who don't want to heat up our kitchens while it's still hot. We're sitting in a parking lot of Walgreens because we have no water. <laughs> electricity. <laughs> electricity. Internet. Or and or cell phone. Or cell phone coverage. Coverage at home. <laughs> and so, even we, if we did have water, we are under a boil water notice right now. So it wouldn't do us any good to have water because we have no electricity. To so, boil it. Yeah. <laughs> When I spoke with them on Wednesday, they had been without power for a few days, and it's been cold in Houston, below freezing, which they aren't really used to. It's cold, but we're, we're doing okay and with our blankets and snuggling up and just, it's okay. We can bundle up and stay warm for the most part. Brooke and Timo both work in the medical center in Houston. They have a 14-year-old daughter, plus a German Shepherd mix and at least seven cats. Brooke admitted that there is some part of her that appreciates the chance to slow down, reset, and focus on what matters most. It's coming from a place of privilege that our walls are well insulated, we have plenty of blankets, we're resourceful, we're, we're okay. I know Brooke and Timo both like to cook, so I wanted to hear about what they were eating and how they had managed to prepare food in these limited conditions. We were ill-prepared for this, and so we didn't go and get any fresh fruits and vegetables or bread or anything like that. 
but Timo did attempt to make a small Kroger run on the weekend, and the place was mobbed with people. I sent him a list, a pretty modest list, like some mushrooms, tomatoes, plums, if they had any, just just to see what they have, like fresh fruits and vegetables and stuff. And he gathered up a small cart of things, turned around to look at some sparkling water, and turned back around and his cart was gone. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess I thought, also, I'll have what he's having. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also took the second to the last mushrooms. So then I went back and took them. The last mushrooms of Koga. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some people are just eating cold foods. Some are using camp stoves. Brooke and Timo have turned to their grill and cast iron pans. Last night, we had some bratwurst, and he put those on the grill, along with the mushrooms and like a Worcestershire sauce with sweet onions. And we grilled those, of course, only by the light of the grill itself, because we also don't have any flashlights. <laughs> they were a little charred, but they were really, they were nice. <laughs> and I only know that they were charred w- when I would bite into it, because we, we had dinner by candlelight also, but it, I can't say that it was enough that I could actually see what we were eating. Yeah. It tasted really good, though. <laughs> yeah. And we had, as a, a dessert, we made baked apples with mm-hmm. cinnamon and a little bit of butter, butter. salt, cinnamon, brown sugar. Yeah. yeah, those are nice. I've been craving roasted or baked apples. And we have a lot of cast iron, so we've been able to put that to use on the grill. We have a, a small little cast iron like a little sauce pot. We were able to heat up the sauerkraut in that and had some whole grain mustard and bread and the bratwurst. It was actually really yeah. delicious and, and nice. That's something so simple and Bread. You're German. I mean, it's how you eat bratwurst. Yeah, anyway, it's a bratwurst, it? bratwurst, a sauerkraut, and uh, yeah, mustard. And, and onions and mushrooms. It was delicious. Yeah. And then I, so I wanted to get a little bit more creative. We also have some cod, and I know that I have coconut milk. We were able to buy a, a bell pepper, and then I have a in the garden. I have a lot of parsley and cilantro, albeit it is frozen. I think I can still go ahead and use it. And so <laughs> we're going to try to make a cast iron moqueca, which is like a Brazilian fish stew. And I think it should be fine. We'll probably kind of make the coconut milk with tomatoes, onions, garlic, cilantro, the bell pepper, heat that up on the, in, in one of bit. the cast iron skillets on the grill covered. And then maybe once it gets pretty warm, we'll put in the pieces of cod and we'll see, Kate, I will let you know on the other side of this, how, <laughs> how this works out. So that's the plan maybe for tonight. And then we have some bread that we'll, heat up, we'll roll it in tinfoil and heat that up to dip in the stew. Brooke also said she was hoping to make a shashuka on the grill. I asked her to explain. So basically crushed tomatoes, onions, garlic. Garlic, lots of garlic. And I would use cilantro. You can make a verde shashuka or a red tomato-based one. And then and then we, we put heat that, that in up. the cast iron skillet, get that really nice and hot, and then create little divots in the sauce and put a few eggs in it, drop that right into the hot tomato sauce and let those cook. Hopefully just like two that, yeah, uh, the trick is like not to overcook it, that they are cooked thoroughly. So maybe just a few minutes and then yeah. eat. Yeah, eat, luckily eat, eat. we have some lids for our cast iron that way we can really get the egg whites cooked all the way without cooking the um 
the yolks so you get it and there again we have some bread that we can heat up for dipping that and lots and lots of salsa <laughs> and chips so we've also done kind of a like almost like a Tex-Mex shishuka where you use tortilla chips in that as well so it's like a cross between a chilaquiles and a shishuka works for me <laughs> <laughs> That was Brooke Barclay and Timo Klisch in Houston, Texas, making the best of a bad situation, cooking on their backyard grill during the great Texas winter power outage of 2021. We've got pictures on our website, eartheats.org. And that story first aired in February of 2021. Still ahead, we hear from Ron Finley about the power of urban gardening in South Central LA. Stay with us. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. And now we turn to Ron Finley. You may have heard of him. He's known as the gangster gardener. He gave a TED Talk back in 2013. We got to make this sexy. So I want us all to become evolutionary, renegades, gangsters, gangster gardeners. We got to change, we got to flip the script on what a gangster is. If you ain't a gardener, you ain't gangster. Get Get gangster with your shovel, okay? And let that be your weapon of choice. Ron Finley lives in South Central Los Angeles, where he grows food and flowers in his yard. He started growing food on the strip of public land between the sidewalk and the street outside his house. He was sharing the food with neighbors or anyone walking by, kind of a spontaneous community garden space, or what some might call guerrilla gardening. Finley was fined for using that space, and he fought it. He fought for the right to beautify and to grow food in those spaces throughout the city, in those strips of forgotten land like islands and medians and parkways. He fought and he won. Because of Ron Finley, it's now legal to grow food in those places, all over the city. Ron Finley visited the Honors College at Indiana University in 2018 as part of their Mini Worlds One Globe lecture series. He had a conversation on stage with Andrea Shukeli, the dean of the Hutton Honors College. Here are some recorded excerpts from that talk. You are an artist, a collector, a designer, and a gardener. And a father. How does the urge of planting and promoting community gardens reconcile your other aspects? It all goes, everything is symbiotic. Everything goes together. The act of gardening is everything. You know, you have all these elements that you're dealing with. The land, the soil, um, taking care of things. it's not, just, it's not just a single thing, you know? It's like, it's real simple. If, if we grow together, we grow together. Well, um, what urged you to see the need of, for promoting community gardening, utilizing, you know, basically empty spots like the parkways and use grassy spots? Well, because it was, it was a thing where, throughout the city, not just in South LA, it was just this vacant piece of land and in, in a lot of cities, there's no place for you to grow food collectively there's you know you might have your front yard you might have your backyard but 
the, the parkway, which is the strip of grass, you know, right before you get to the street. That strip of grass, I'm like, damn, you can, you know, why have grass there? We're not cows, we can't eat no damn grass. <laughs> you know, so I figured you have this place and, you, and there's no healthy food anywhere, so why not just put the healthy food right here in front of your house where you can share with other people? You know, and, um, and that's what I get, did, and I got a warrant for my arrest. <laughs> you know, but it was, it was crazy because, you know, they would have dressers and toilets and condoms and trash and, and, no, and I never got a warrant. You know, I never got like, hey, you know, but soon as I beautified, as soon as there was hummingbirds and butterflies and, you know, lizards, you know, that's when I got a warrant. So it, and that's, that spoke volumes to me, you know, that if somebody comes and try to, to put beauty in a place where there is none, they get a, you know, they get a citation. But if they leave it ugly and, you know, with trash sprawling all over the place, it's, it's okay. I'm sure that there are many people, if I were going to ask my friends in Italy, they would never imagine that of all places, California, it's a place where entire sections of the population have no access to fresh produce. It's something inimaginable, especially if you think about the Hollywood right. ideas that we get about California. Or if you go there as a tourist and you see all this. Would you tell us a little bit more how you see your movement grow and change your own community, South Central LA, and how it can affect the rest of the country and the world? Well, first of all, we have to understand that poverty is by design, just like Communities are by design. It's like they, they call them underserved areas. Okay, so why don't you put something on, uh, over there where it's not underserved? And I, I, I actually posed that question to a bunch of, of mayors once at a mayor's conference. And, you know, why are underserved areas underserved? And they're like, oh, well, you know, it starts. So I said, no, I don't need your song and dance. They're underserved because you don't, un because you don't serve them. That, it's that simple. In areas where you want something, you put it there. Easy. So it's the same thing when, when these communities of color, all of a sudden the complexion of that community changes, all of a sudden there's infrastructures. So what does that tell me? That you just didn't give a shit about this community. That's, that's all. And that's, and that's throughout America. Because I've been to a lot of states and if there's black, brown, or red communities there, it's the same thing. You know. Um, people don't care until other people are there. So you're, the question was, how have what I've done changed? It's changed people in a sense that they know they have the opportunity to change what's going on around them, not just deal with it and think that this is how it is and this is how it's going to be because it's always been like this. You know, nobody thought about p putting food on these parkways because they were designed to have grass there. So we're all designers, we're all artists. Everybody in this room's an artist. So if it don't fit, you change it. If it so that's, that's what I've done. And it's, I mean, I've been from, shoot, I was just in uh, Sao Paulo. These, these guys put a gigantic garden in. They just literally took the space over in front of their apartment building and they put a garden in. I said, this is because of you. There's a kid that sent me pictures in from San Antonio where he, he had his parents make these boxes in front of their house on the parkway and he calls it his community grocery store. 
and everybody from the community can come and partake in the food. Because it's, it's almost like people have woken up and said, you know, you're right. I'm the person that's supposed to do this. Why am I waiting for somebody else to give me what I need? You know, because think about it, if we all got together and start not growing all your food, growing some of your food, and then you share it with your neighbors because they're growing something different. Just imagine what the, the system that you have taken yourself out of. And it's, it's not just one system. It's a bunch of systems, all the way from the health system to your community to uh, conversation that you will have, to people looking after their communities instead of being like we are now where everybody's closed off from each other and this is mine and this whole greed mentality where he, we could share. And that's what, my, what I'm doing has opened up a lot of people's minds across the country to saying collectively we can make this better. You said that the funny thing about sustainability is that one has to sustain. <laughs> What is the relationship between food as sustenance and food as part of a sustainable project? Food have, we need not just food, we need healthy, nutritious food. And a lot of these, a lot of times, we're not getting that. You know, in a lot of situations, bless you, a lot of people don't know what healthy foods looks like. A lot of, I had some, some young girls that I invited to my garden um, Sunday. And... Their, their parents, you know, are living under, they were living under a freeway, and uh, a, a girl that I had just met, she's taking care of them. I said, you should come by, and I'll show them the garden. And they had never seen a ladybug. You know, they had never eaten a fresh orange off the tree, you know, and they did this, and it changed. I had them eating oxalis and, and nasturtiums and, and different kinds of spinach right out the ground, and they had never... They had never experienced this. And, it, and you could see from the pictures how they looked when they got there to how they looked when they left holding a sunflower plant to plant in the ground. So it's the thing with gardens to me, it's not just that, it's not just food. You know, to me it equals freedom. You know, freedom to, from, in, in some senses, oppression. Because we're depending on somebody to give us everything that we do instead of depending on ourselves to do it. You gotta think that some, some kids in some situations, they've never had any healthy food. They don't know what it tastes like. They don't, they don't know the difference between this food-ish to real food. Most people have not seen where their food is grown and the greatness of mother nature and earth and how you take this little teeny seed and all of a sudden you have a tree that bears fruit. I mean, you can't call this nothing else but magic. I mean, look, you know, when you think about it, here you have something that destroys itself in the ground to give you food. And I think that's, that's a process that, that we need to see because most people do not know a plant in its natural form. They only know what came from that plant. You know, like I had some kids from uh, Harvard University come by, and I'm like, okay, what's that? Uh, spinach, uh, parsley. And I'm like, no, you clown, it's, it's a carrot, you know? <laughs> but they didn't know a carrot top from its, you know, and, it's, and we, should, we should know this. We should know what we're eating. We should know where it comes from. We should know what it looks like in the ground, we should know how it's grown instead of just going to the store and it's there. And with a child, when you show them that magic of putting a seed in the ground and, and pulling out this carrot, and it's like, I made this, you know, so 
it's, it's an attachment there that they have that they don't get from anything else. You know, it's different from you just sitting a plate in front of them and, and it's there rather than them taking it out the ground and washing it and then they put it on their own plate. So, so it, I think it affects your whole system. And it's like just eating the food. Who in here grows food, their own, some of their own food? Oh, that's a lot. You other people need to get with it and stop playing. Um, and so you guys know how when you grow something, it just feels like it, it even tastes better. It might be your psyche, but it just tastes better than something you got from the store. If you present this to a child at an early age, I think that affects who they are. It affect, they're going to think about it totally different if you reinforce it. And it's not just that one time. This stuff, it has to be reinforced. The way we're going to change this and, and bring gardens into um, certain communities and certain people, we have to make it sexy. And how do you make something sexy is um, you show people how they can make money from it. No, this is how you can make a living. This is how you can change your life. This is how you can change your community. This is how you can change people's health. And, and, I've, and I've literally seen that happen. What they call in permaculture stacking functions. When you think of like worm bins, you put your scraps from your food, your rotten food into this worm bin and all of a sudden the worms turn it into worm castings. It's a fancy word for worm poop. And, um, and then also the, the liquid from this process, it, you catch it at the bottom of your worm bin. So now, and all of this is nutrient-rich products for your soil. And so now you have three things that you can sell from, from basically from your trash. You can sell the worms because they multiply like crazy and they can't fit into the bin. So you can sell your worms, you can sell the worm castings, and you can sell the worm tea that you've collected. So all of this has a value. And it's all that's free. And so these are the lessons that, I'm, that I try to um, instill in, in especially kids. You know, to keep them interested in it and to show them the magic and the science. I mean, we have to make it sexy like that. We have to make it interesting. And um, I think with that, we, you know, it's, it's going to happen. We, um, we can create um, an equolution, you know, around the planet because it's already started. That was artist, activist, gardener Ron Finley of the Ron Finley Project. Find more about his work on our website, eartheats.org. This interview originally aired in May of 2019. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knobloch, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Shauna Gabriella, AK Medicine Miha, Brooke Barclay, Timo Klisch, Vaughn Finley, and Dean Andre Chicarelli. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. 
Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Thank you.